right. This is Dave Pryor. Welcome to Leading Agile Sound Notes. Today, I'm here with Mike Kottmeyer. Mike, thanks for making time. You're a busy guy. What is up, Dave? It's always a pleasure hanging out with you and chit-chatting. Yes, I'm excited about this too. And I'm excited because <laughs> I got to pick the topic today. Um, oh, whoa. It's, it's, it's a podcast host choice, apparently, huh? Yeah. So before <laughs> we get into that, what's been going on okay. with you? My goodness, gosh, it's been a minute since we've talked, right? So we've had yeah. the holidays and um, we've got Omnicron. Um, yeah, so been doing some skiing, right? So I think um, I probably not since last we talked, but over the last year or so, developed some, developed uh, into a pretty solid intermediate skier. So I spent some time out in Colorado doing that. And then, um, you know, we've talked about jujitsu. Uh, mm-hmm. quite a bit over the last couple of podcasts. I'm doing my first jiu-jitsu tournament on Saturday. Wow. And so that's, Sweep a, the that's leg. quite an adventure. Yeah. Yeah. You did it or well, you're going so, to do it? Well, no. So I'm, I actually have my first jiu-jitsu tournament on this Saturday. Saturday. Okay. This Saturday. Yeah. And so we'll see, right. I don't have any expectations. I don't think I don't, you know, I'd like to, like, I'd like to think that, that I have a shot at winning, but you know, we'll see. Right. Um, you know, it's funny, right? So it's an IBJJF tournament and it's, and in, in, it's by age, skill level and weight. And so I'm in like a weight class that takes me, I have to be at like two Oh three when I walk in and it's guys that are like 50 plus or minus a couple years and all in the beginner class. So beginner heavyweight. I could qualify. Yeah. So I mean, so maybe, right. I don't, I don't know exactly how old you are. I can't fight. 50, I'm 52. I can't fight. Minus but... a couple years. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, it'll be interesting, right? They're five minute rounds, right? So I've learned a lot, you know, it's probably a topic for another day, but I've learned a lot about adult learning. I've learned a lot about myself um, by doing some of these things that are, that are kind of outside the agile world. Okay. But you tend to learn a lot about kind of yourself and how you operate and what drives you and all those kinds of things. So that's what I've been up to, right? Yeah. So cool. I definitely yeah. want to come back to that one at some point about cool. taking on challenges where you're not expert at. So I think that should definitely oh, be awesome. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. But Very cool. I picked the topic of first principles and I picked it okay. because this is a very common thing that is spoken about at Leading Agile. Yeah. And I have been ashamed to ask people for a while, like, well, what are the first principles? And yeah. I finally started to ask people and I found out that they were not necessarily clearer on them than I was. So I would yeah. like to talk about that. What are they? Like, how did you find them? Like, what what do people need to know about them? Well, so it's like, it, it's it's really interesting, you know? So it's like, we we tend to hunt a bunch of words around it. But it's like, so maybe I'll give you like an idea of what it's not, or, or maybe we'll start with something that's like pretty home base for a lot of people. Okay. So if you, if you talk about something like scrum, you know, if you go back and you say, okay, well, we, we form teams and, and we, we do daily stand-up meetings and we do sprint planning and we do burn down charts and we do all those things. Like those aren't really first principles, right? They're like non-negotiables of scrum. Yeah. But like, I go back to like Ken Schwaber's work. I forget the book. It's like the red, yellow, blue, green. I think it's red, yellow, blue. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's like, you know, like Ken's talking in that book about like the elements of like process control. Um, And, and he's talking about like the idea of when you have a very predictable system, you can plan a predictable system. But when you have a, a system that is inherently um, variable, 
then the principle is that you have to measure frequently. I think he calls it stochastic process control, but I could be wrong. Um, you have to measure frequently to make sure that you're constraining variation mm -hmm. so you can adjust as you go. Okay. Right. So like a first principle of Scrum is we believe that, that the process of software development mm -hmm. is not inherently predictable. And we think about it, right? So we know requirements are unpredictable. We know the, the, the throughput of any given individual is predictable or is unpredictable. Um, we know that just the, the size of the requirements, the nature of the requirements, it's all unpredictable. Right. And so what we do is we rely on some of these, these ideas of you know, different strategies and process control to be able to manage the flow of value out of a scrum team. Okay. And, and I think what happens is that, is that people often forget the things that are like universally true or why they're true. And so, I think about like principles and patterns okay. and beliefs and things like that. And they remember like the process steps. Yeah. They, they remember they the lose methodology. The yeah. They, yeah. They lose the big why behind it. Okay. And, um, and, and so one of the things that, that we talk about a lot, because I think it's, it's necessary to be a really solid consultant is you have to deeply understand the why, right? You have to deeply understand first principles. Mm -hmm. So, so like things that we talk about quite a bit, you know, like, and, and again, right, the, they, they kind of build. So it's really kind of hard to say what's like a first principle or a second principle, but like the kinds of things that I might consider really super foundational is that if you are doing any kind of managed work, then and I say managed very intentionally because not all work needs to be managed like this. Right. But, but we have to be able to say, we have to be able to balance capacity and demand. Like that's like a really mm. basic one. To maintain right? flow, yeah. And, and, so, and so we need to know how much capacity we have to deliver. And we need to know the demand that's on the system. And we need to have a mechanism for making sure that we don't put too much demand on the system then we have capacity to deliver okay. or else we'll have a system that gets out of control kind of mm -hmm. a thing. Right. And so, and so there's some like really basic stuff around that. Right. And so you say, okay, well, how would a traditionally managed project balance capacity and demand? Well, they go get a bunch of estimates and they would apply people to the estimates and they would start to anticipate time and cost and, mm -hmm. you know, and, uh, you know, make sure we had all the requirements understood so that or we manage scope, right? All those kinds of things, right? Yeah. And, and there's some flaws in that kind of um, measurement of balancing capacity and demand, right? We, we, the requirements do change and, and the requirements right. are often uncertain and people aren't fungible units or tokens of value, right? So they, okay. they show up all over the place, right? I mean, they have, you know, people you know, get sick and have bad days and go through divorces and kids get sick and have trouble at school. And, yeah. and so people's performance is all over the place. Right. And, and so we don't really know the requirements. The estimates are a little bit of a crapshoot. The, the, um, the ability of any given individual to deliver against an estimate is kind of unpredictable. And then we put people in situations where they're spread across five or six projects at a given time. And if any one thing gets delayed, everything gets delayed, right? So just everything's variable. 
So we're okay. trying to balance capacity and demand, but the strategies we're using to balance capacity and demand are flawed. Mm-hmm. So what, what Scrum comes along and does is it says, okay, cool. Right? So the unit of throughput is the team, and we're going to break things into small pieces. We'll put relative estimates on them. We'll let the team decide how to do the work and to balance the work. Okay. And we found if we get to a really clean definition of done at the end of every sprint, well, then um, then we have a, a pretty good um, mechanism for leveling throughput over time. Yeah. And we can establish stable velocity against a known backlog okay. and keep our system potentially shippable okay. all the time. And so it's so there's probably a lot of first principles in that for me. But but the the kind of the counterpoint is is doesn't really matter how well you're doing scrum if you can't balance capacity and demand. Right. It doesn't really matter how well you're doing scrum if you don't have a complete cross-functional team that can stabilize velocity. Mm-hmm. doesn't really matter how well you're doing scrum if that team isn't operating off of a well-formed, estimated, stable backlog. Okay. Can I check? Can well I doing, check with you yeah, on this? Yeah, please, please. So yeah, sure. I want to try to contrast it to some other stuff. So, okay. if I was in a traditional approach to project management, it yeah. might be true that a first principle would be the idea that if we do enough investigation up front, we can reduce yeah. our risk during execution. Sure. Or maybe that second paragraph from the Declaration of Independence: "We hold these truths to be self-evident." Those mm-hmm. statements are the core bedrock foundation of everything that's coming after. Sure. So everything that we are basing our approach on, there's you know the principles from the manifesto, the basic ideas behind Scrum, the the three things we need for Basecamp One, like they're the starting point for mm-hmm. the work that we're doing. Is that? Yeah. Yeah. So so the reason why I think it's important is one of the things that we've started to do is, I mean, as you engage with leading Agile's materials, as people in the audience engage with like our our, our stuff on our site. Um, you know, different things have different levels of authoritativeness. They have different levels of rigor and influence and such. And so, okay. like, like we don't put any controls over who kind of comes along and um, talks on your podcast right with you. Right. And it's cool because, right, what we're doing is that everybody on my team's smart and we're all doing great work. We're all in the throes of things. We all don't understand everything exactly the same and different of us have different abilities to communicate these ideas. But you know what? It's just exploratory, right? It's just what mm-hmm. we're learning. It's that person's perspective, right? And it and it right. ends up being a fun kind of entertaining discussion. Same with blog posts. Not crazy authoritative. But as you start getting into like if we're going to do a webinar or we're going to do a conference talk or we're going to write a white paper or change the website or something like that. Well, the the bar for kind of authoritativeness goes up, and so right. you know one of the things that we've been doing as a company, which I which is a really super cool exercise, is that um, various groups, communities of practice, um, different account teams, different um, product areas, things like that, offering areas that we have, will get uh, once a week and they'll do a presentation on a certain set of content. And one of the things that we do is we we um, you know, we just communicate something that we might want to communicate to market or put into our internal database or right. something like that, right? So it's a it's a way to information share and have some pretty, um, you know, uh, you know, rich uh, contact with me and with the team, and it helps drive shared understanding up. So it's one of the things we've been doing for the last few months. 
And so one of the questions that I got that I started asking people sometimes is if I assert something to you to be true, and for whatever reason you disagree with me, like where do you go? Right. So if you said to somebody, and we'll just use some some basic examples, right? If you said to somebody, well, okay, to do Scrum, you have to have a product owner, and the product owner has to be from the business, and they have to do all these things. They have to write user stories, and they have to write. Right. Um, you have to work with the team and come to sprint planning and be involved in the team room and answer questions and 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 provide acceptance criteria and sign off at the end of the sprint, and and that's what a product owner does. Right. And the person you're talking to goes, Yeah, I'm not going to do that. And really call the I mean, other happens, coach. right? And we're like the other coach. Yeah. The other coach. Yeah. Uh, not gonna happen. Yeah. And, and so what do you do? Like, what do you do to influence that person? Right. So so that's really like what we've been hunting a little bit. It's like, it's like, what are your tools of influence? And and if the only thing you have to say is, well, I'm right because I work for Leading Agile, or I'm right because this is what Ken Schwaber said in this book. Right. Or I'm right because whatever. Um, that's like a weak argument, right? It's really like an appeal to it. It's like I did this or, because it's cool. Yeah. Well, just because I did it because I'm mean, like, it's like I was telling somebody the other day, like, like why does everybody in Leading Agile kind of have to conform to the way that I talk about things? And and if I said it was because I'm the CEO or I'm the boss, that's like really weak, right? It's an appeal to outside authority in a way. It's an it's an appeal to positional power. I just think that's weak, right? And so and so a big part of the reason why why we work really hard to align the organization right. is because when I'm on, you know, sessions like this and you and I are having a conversation, or I'm on a sales call talking to a team of executives. I'm making promises about our organization. Right. I'm making promises about what we do, what we believe, how we deliver, the approach we take, right? All those things. And so, so one of the things that I have to do is I have to, I have to cascade that belief out into the organization. I have to cascade that understanding out in the organization. And and but when I'm on a sales call and somebody is in a situation where they get to decide whether to hire us or not. Right. Or they get to decide, even if they don't hire us, just to do what we believe is right. They read our white paper and they go, um, you know, I want them, I want them to do things well, right? I want these companies to to be successful. Right. And if and if I just say, well, this is this is true because I'm Mike Kottmeyer and I have 20 years of experience and I built this company and we have this track record of success, like it's like, yeah, okay, right? Yeah. What well, but what I believe is is like if you can reduce a high-level argument down to its first principles, right? Just the core things that are inarguably true. Right. Then, then you have a basis to rebuild an argument. So like if somebody, so again, if I was talking to like a director or vice president of a PMO and they said, well, look, Mike, I believe that, um, that one of the first principles is, is that requirements are knowable. And if you don't understand your requirements and they're changing all the time, then you're an irresponsible project manager. Mm -hmm. It's a project manager's job to get scope, right? And now I go, well, you know, the Agile Manifesto says, or Ken Schwaber says, or Alistair Coburn says that project requirements are variable. So project requirements are variable. I'd be like, hmm. Like, is that a strong argument? Like, is that going to convince Yeah, that's concerning to me for completely different reasons. You just said something that really... 
I don't know. It was like I had a little moment there. Like a, um, like a little epiphany, a minor epiphany. Yeah, yeah, I, did. yeah. I connected something that I had not connected before. So okay. you, you brought up going in and you promised something and our people need to be able to deliver it. And we've talked before yeah. about the trust influence loop and how important yeah. that is. So like I've always thought about yeah. it that way. But I've also listened to you talk about returning to first principles and going back to them, like you just said. Like if they're if they're not with you, you got to go go back to where to the common core thing that you both believe to be true that you've already agreed yeah. on, and you yeah. move forward from there. And I know I've seen you do that, so I know that you do it just kind of reflexively. But for the people that work here, understanding that. When you find that you're like off in a field all by yourself, you need to yeah. go back and get the person and, well, and make sure that they're in sync with what you've already told the person was going to happen. Well, so, so gosh, there's so many different ways you could fork this conversation. So one of the things that's a challenge, and I, and I think it's a challenge that we fundamentally undervalued. It's like usually when somebody calls us, they have been exposed They've listened to your podcast. They've read our blogs. They've downloaded a white paper. They've watched my Why Agile Fails talk. Right. I mean, our marketing team's phenomenal. They have they have us everywhere, right? And so tons of content. So usually by the time somebody picks up the phone and calls, they're pretty familiar with our stuff. Yeah, they know what they're getting. And into. and then we and then the way that we sell work is we get on the phone, we just talk to people, we educate, we explore, we solve problems, very consultative. Don't really sell, and you know, usually at some point somebody will say, "Well, I really am, I'm into this, and I'd really like you guys to help. How can you help us?" And then that's at the point it turns into like a, "Okay, well, this is how we do contracts, and this is how we set up initial right. engagements, and this is how we work." Right? But but up until the ask, it it's almost always just an education, right? It's an educational conversation. But point being is that by the time that we actually are on the ground doing something with somebody. There's usually been a um, a tremendous amount of education and alignment that happens to get us mm -hmm. there, and and I think sometimes what we kind of forgot though is that you know as you start fanning out into the organization and and maybe even like the whole initial group of people that we're working with in the transformation maybe maybe even they are like really on board and they've been part of the define the end states and the pilots right. and they're all invested and everything and then we go to the next piece of the organization or the next piece of the organization and everybody isn't as aligned right. because they, they, they didn't read all the materials and they're not as invested in all the different content things and the first principles I talk about and everything. So everything's kind of new. And, and so what we kind of realize is that we need to get um, more of our consultants being able to evangelize from this, this core place. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and so so in order to get people to see what it is that we need them to see, to get them to change their, their belief systems so they're willing to try working on these different kinds of structures, with different kinds of processes and things like that to really right. further reinforce the belief, then you have to come back to um, you know, some, some of these things, right? And so when you're trying to overcome resistance and you can't appeal to authority or power or position or whatever right right you have to go back to okay cool like so we agree that you have to be able to balance capacity and demand right yeah. you can't put more on the team than they can do so what do you believe is the right strategy for that right and we have to align beliefs well because if beliefs aren't in alignment then the details of whatever we're talking about don't matter not gonna matter yeah and what's cool is that if the beliefs are aligned, the details don't usually matter. 
right? Because if yeah. we fundamentally believe we have to align capacity and demand, and we and we believe that requirements are inherently unknowable, yeah. and that people aren't fungible across estimates, mm-hmm. and that and that variation is is the the rule of the day, and managing variation and managing risk is really what we need to do to be successful. Then, then it just comes down to is what strategy do you think is best for getting you there? And, and, and you could double down on traditional project management, and, but probably what would happen is the amount of time you needed to take to know the requirements, right. the amount of time you needed to take to get the estimates. You could have been learning the about plans. the product, yeah. Well, yeah, right? So it's like, and then what I, what I find is that the, the groups that, that do excel at traditional project management, they're out there, they're just slow typically, right? Yeah. Because that level, or, or if they're not slow, I would suggest that they have probably deeply um, long-standing teams that have been operating this way, deeply know the product, right? All kinds of things. So there's conditions in which traditional project management can work. Yeah. But, but for the most part, p- people empirically, you know, based on experience, understand that traditional project management is not working for them. And either they need to double down on that belief system or they need to rethink their belief system a mm-hmm. little bit. And what we're trying to do is we're trying to get people to rethink their belief system. But to well, the point you made, you usually have to deconstruct it to either the common things we believe yeah. or or if we realize that we have a different belief system, we have to deal with the belief system first. And then once we're in alignment with the belief system, then we can talk about strategies for maximizing performance. Okay. And what is the best way or what do we believe is the best bet? You know, I've asked people before, it's like, it's like, do you believe requirements are knowable? And I, I think they should be knowable. I'm like, do you think the team that you're working with knows them? Do you think they understand their markets deeply enough yeah. that things are not going to change ever? Well, okay. So think, yeah. And so you can build the- a rational argument that basically goes like, I hear that that's what you would like to be true, but do you have any evidence that it's actually right. true? And if there's no evidence that it's actually true, well, then how would we deal with that? Because we don't want to put our heads in the sand, right? We want to be able to deliver work um, to the organization in a reliable, predictable way. So is it safe to assume that by the time they show up as a customer, they've already found a way to validate that they have that common belief system? Because, I mean, to me, they seem like inarguable things, although somebody could argue against it. Oh, people argue against it all the time, Dave. And, and so, like, I had a conversation the other day. Um, our marketing and sales team is doing a really good job of getting me out in front of people. And, and sometimes the beliefs are something like this, right? Well, we've tried Agile, and it works pretty well. And, and we're actually kind of happy with our safe implementation, our scrum implementation, or less implementation, or something like that. But we can't get the leadership team to support us in the right way. So therefore, we're still doing project-based funding, and we still have typical audit and compliance goals, and we have all these different things. And and so what we need you to do is to help our leadership change, right? Something like that. Like That that could be like an introductory kind of call. I can see where the dissonance would be there because they got to their offices through the traditional model, and you're showing up like, have you heard the good news? Yeah, for sure, right? And so so that conversation usually goes, okay, cool. So how do you want to approach it? And they're like, well, I want you to go tell my manager that they're, they're wrong. Um, that they're wrong. And <laughs> I, I want you to use your industry authority to get them to behave differently or something. Right. And, and usually that conversation goes, well, so what I've found is that's not a typically an effective strategy. 
because they're in charge. You're not. They get to kind of decide. You don't. Um, They're the ones that are responsible at the end of the day for making commitments to customers and to markets, shareholders or whatever. You're not. And so to some degree, a little bit like what I was saying about why do I get to win more arguments than I probably am entitled to? It's because at the end of the day, I'm the guy spending the money and making the bets and, and doing mm-hmm. the things, right? And it's my responsibility to make sure that the team is fed with new work, kind of a thing, right? Yeah. And so, and so what I usually what I usually ask is I like, what do you think those leaders want from you? Okay. Right? We're not talking about agile or scrum or the three things, right. structure, governance, metrics. Like, what do you think they want? And almost always, in some form or fashion, it comes down to a reliable system of delivery, a reliable <laughs> operating model that they can delegate into and get stuff that they want back. Right. Right. They kind of want to know if I put these dollars in to solve these problems, then those problems are going to be solved. Right. Um, I've had literally had people tell me like, well, these managers need to stop managing us to dates. I'm like, do you really think there's any world in which people are just going to give you giant buckets of money and infinite time to deliver whatever you believe is most self-organize the culture. Like it's just not going to happen. Like it's so good. Right. I mean, if you can get it right, but there's no world I think where that's reasonable to ask somebody to do. Right. Right. So, so what you have to start to do is you have to start to, to, you have to start to work down the first principles. Okay, cool. So they want a reliable system of delivery that they can delegate into and get predictable results. Cool. Mm -hmm. Right. That we have to be able to make and meet commitments. Maybe we don't make them five years in advance, but maybe we start with two weeks. We get to a quarterly, right? We get to kind of where we can execute generally against a roadmap. Like what's what does that actually mean? So then you go like, well, what are the attributes of a system that would deliver that, right? Um, what would it look like? It would, you know, it would and then have- And the question a, a, basically answers itself. Yeah. yeah, you just walk down the stack, right? And so typically I'll take it from, you know, from audit compliance and- you know, governance strategies, investment tiers, budgets, constraints, things like that, to team-based organizational design, agile governance models, agile metrics, things like how would you do that? Up underneath that is teams, backlogs, working test software. Up underneath that, you get into principles of um, cost accounting versus throughput accounting. You get balancing capacity and demand. You get the idea of... um, you know, the the individual is the unit of throughput, really just kind of cost accounting versus throughput accounting is the team okay. the unit of throughput. And so so what you can do is you understand the fundamental principles, but you start from a position of we need to give the executives what they want. Right. And then we build a system of delivery that actually gives them what they want. And then we teach them how they can exploit that system of delivery to okay. make smaller bets in market, to deliver things more frequently to put things in front of customers sooner so that you can learn from them. And then once the system is trustworthy and they can delegate into it and they know they can get what they want out of it, yeah. then they can start to figure out how to advance their understanding and exploit it in a more agile way mm-hmm. so that they can you know, better achieve the results that they want. Okay. Right. And so, and so I guess what we're really kind of getting at is that a lot of times and our consultants are like this, our customers are like this. I mean, a lot of a lot of people are like this. It's like I have the answer. I mean, this is the problem kind of sometimes with safe, right? Yeah. Is safe's the answer. Right. But like what if it's not? Like what if but it's what was not the question? Working? I mean, that was well, that's there you a- go. What was the question? Right. <laughs> 
it's kind of funny, right? Um, and I don't know that this is true anymore. I'm not like a hardcore PC guy, but like I grew up in my early stages of my career in DOS and early stages of Windows, and I could do, you know, auto exec bat files and memory management, all these <laughs> kinds of different things that were yep. that I thought were pretty cool when I was like 19, 20 years old, right? And and but like coming out of a computer science degree, having all that, like I understand a bit, you know, I mean it's aging like yeah. ideas, right? But I understand a bit about how computers work and how operating systems work and all those kinds of things. And so back in the day, a lot of the reasons why people like maybe maybe not so much Windows anymore, but maybe like Linux or you know open source model kinds of things is because if you're knowledgeable, you can get in, you can tweak it, and you can make it solve the problem that you want it to solve. Okay. Yeah. Um, I think you have more flexibility with Windows to to tweak it to make it solve the problems you want to solve. Um, I'm kind of a Mac. I, I I'm super comfortable at this stage of my life. I like the Apple ecosystem. But I will tell you, if something's wrong with my Mac, for the most part, like I reboot it and I just hope that it's going to work when it reboots, right? Well, yeah. Because I, because I I don't know <laughs> anything about how it works, so like I can't I can't like actually fix anything but, ever. But don't you right? think? I, I guess to me, like Linux, if you understand it well enough to be able to tweak it safely and do stuff, Windows, if you don't want anybody to be able to change anything, it's just standard. And Mac, if you just don't want to have problems. Well, well, so it's a little, well, so, so maybe just to build on that a little bit, it's like a lot of times, you know, to me, it's like understanding first principles allows yeah. us to more effectively adapt and to create situationally specific strategies. Sure. So like understanding first principles is a little bit more like being able to get up underneath Android or Linux or something like that, where yeah. I actually can hack the kernel and I can make it work even better kind of a thing. That the systems and, become stronger if people have that freedom and ability. Well, well, so only so only if appropriately applied, right? I mean, and so this is this is the okay. dilemma that, that you have, right? So as consultants, I expect our people to be able to do this, mm -hmm. right? As as the general population, right? I mean, Dean Leffingwell will be the first person to tell you that safe is designed to be tailored. Yeah. I mean, we know, you know, I'm not Dean tells you that. Well, I don't feel like everybody else tells you that. Well, well, that's well, that's well, but there's a pragmatic reason. So you think about like RUP before that. RUP was absolutely designed to be tailored. The PMI Pinbox stuff is designed to be tailored. Right. And it's not, you're not supposed to take the entire document and apply it in its in entirety. You're supposed to make decisions about what is applicable in your environment. Right. The the reality often is that is that people don't know how to tailor things appropriately in a in a way that doesn't corrupt the design intent of the system. Okay. You know? And so that's why and so so even using a word like design intent, it doesn't corrupt the first principles of the system. So yeah. like let me give you we'll go back to Scrum is just an easy example. So I did this talk. Um, Daniel Gulo invited me to the Scrum Gathering in Vegas. You know, it had to be 13, 14, something like that. Long, long time ago, a couple of years after I started leading Agile. And I said, I said, and I did this talk. I was like, the three things you need to know to transform any size organization. And this is still the core of, like, the core mm -hmm. of the leading Agile model. And I said, teams, backlogs, working tests, software. And so, and so, look, let's like give a counterpoint. So Scrum would tell you there's three roles. There's the team, there's the product owners, there's the Scrum master, right? And maybe I'm getting mixed up three artifacts, right? You have the, the backlog, the sprint backlog, you have the burndown chart, right? You have the ceremonies, you have the sprint planning, daily stand-up, review and retrospective, right? And so you have this frame. Mm -hmm. But but the my talk was about, like, I don't care about the frame. 
What I care about is if I have a complete cross-functional team that is able to produce a working tested increment of software at the end of every sprint, and they're operating off of a very clearly well-articulated backlog. And, and that's meaning, right? I go to Mike Cohn, Bill Wake, and the Invest Model. I go to some of the, the work Ron Jeffries did, some of the work Alistair Coburn did, Kent Beck, right? All those things about how they're describing what we kind of commonly call a user story now, right? So yeah. if, I have a, if I have a stack of cards and the team is processing them and is able to deliver them with a stable velocity, and they're able to get them into a potentially shippable state every sprint. Yeah. What I find is that if you create those fundamental conditions, mm-hmm. like it doesn't really matter whether you have a scrum master or not. It doesn't really matter whether you have a product owner or not. Okay. It doesn't matter whether you have sprint planning or not. Like, like I if, mean, you if, you need, ever, like, if you do need that, you'll find it. Well, well, so you'll either find it or it'll be available to you or you'll be able to do it in a less dogmatic way. Mm-hmm. It'll be more like a thinking tool or something that, you know, a, a good practice that you could apply. But like I, I was in a team room with, and this is kind of happenstance back in the day. It was like seven or eight people literally in a team room. And, and it's like, and they talked all day long. They're constantly collaborating. Did they really need to stand up and answer the three questions of a daily stand-up meeting every single day? No. Like, like they really didn't, right? Yeah. And I know that's a trivial example. but if Well, it's create- not trivial because they actually took them out of the Scrum Guide because of it. Oh, did they really? Yeah. I haven't read, it. I haven't read an instance of the Scrum They're Guide. They're gone as of the last right? version, yeah. Oh, interesting. Okay. I'll have to maybe catch myself up on that. Yeah. But it's like, but like we get dogmatic around the practices and and what I was making the case for is that, and this is a common call that we get, we're doing scrum perfectly, but it's not working. So help me understand why. (laughs) Right. And I go, well, okay. So what does it mean to do it perfectly? Well, what they're saying is that they're going through all the motions. They have all the roles. They're doing all the ceremonies. They do all the burndown charts, all that stuff. But inevitably, they're not really writing clean. They build backlogs. an airplane out of bamboo and hope that it would fall. Or they're or they're not, or they're not, um, yeah, cargo cult scrum kind of stuff, right? Yeah. Or they're not, um, they have depend a lot of dependencies between their teams and the other teams that are yeah. unmanaged. They can't get to a working tested increment. So they don't really know what done looks like. They don't really know how to validate acceptance criteria. And and so here's the thing, right? If you don't understand how scrum fundamentally works based upon those first principles, yeah. The only thing you have to hang on to is the dogmatic application of the process. And okay. if you if you do have the first principles in place, yeah, then you have you can so the much right more stuff. freedom about how to how to implement Scrum. Yeah. You know? Right. I so yeah. I want to call back to something we've talked about in the past. We've had conversations okay. in the past about the source material. And I'm bringing this up because you just yeah. mentioned like Kent Beck and Jeffries and, yeah, yeah. and Bill Wake. Yeah. Um and I and as somebody who's read, you've read almost like all of those books. And yeah, the ones it, in, the ones like from 2000 to 2010, like I probably read everything. And I probably haven't read right. anything since there. Okay, but yeah. but, but yeah. that you've you've been, um, my words, slightly yeah. frustrated over the fact that other people aren't aware of those books, haven't read them, don't have that depth. But listening to you talk about it now, I'm wondering if if we get somebody as a customer or staff. Yeah. who is completely 100% in alignment with those core principles and sees them yeah. and believes in them. Yeah. Do the books that explain the reasons we got to those first principles, does that still matter? I mean, not that it wouldn't be good to have, but is, is, are the first principles a strong enough starting point? 
I don't know, man. Let me, let me I'm going to noodle around that a little bit, right? Okay. So there's a guy on my leadership team named Brian Sondergaard. He was actually the guy that introduced me to Agile, gosh, pushing 20 years ago at this okay. point. Maybe not quite that long, 16, 17 years ago. And so, and he was the first guy that gave me opportunity to really um, kind of roll around on this and explore it a little bit. And one of the things that he talks about is he uses the metaphor of um, like thread count in a sheet, right? And I think it's kind of a funny metaphor. If you ever like when you're in college, like yeah, you got really cheap sheets and they're like 200 thread count. And it's like, you can kind of like hold up to like, you can kind of see stuff through them and stuff like that's a sheet, right? But it's being like proud that I had sheets. It's not even an incredibly dense sheet, right? right. Um, and then, you know, you get get older and you start making some money or whatever. Maybe you have a guest bedroom and you want to impress it. So you go out and you buy like the thousand thread count sheets, right? right? And they're thick and plush and they, you know, they feel really good on you, right? And all that kind of stuff, right? Um, like it all comes down to like to me – like I'm super thankful I grew up in IT and computers when I did in the late 80s, early 90s. And I'm sure other people have more experience even beyond that, right? But like I'm happy I know what a five and a quarter inch floppy drive is, you know? I'm happy that I've I've seen um, hard drives that were as big as a brick that didn't have a, a thousandth of the uh, storages on my phone right now, right? Um, so, so it's like, to me, like going back and having that experience, it it increases the depth of of understanding, yeah. and I yeah, and I think it makes you more influential and deeply knowledgeable. Mm-hmm. But I don't think it's required to effectively lead transformation. People ask me all the time, "What book should I read?" I, I don't think there's any book that fully captures it because. It's the Poppendick work. It's David Anderson's early All stuff books, on agile yeah. management and Kanban, and it's the early, um, it's the early Alistair Coburn stuff, and it's the early Ken Schwaber stuff, and the early Jim Highsmith stuff, and you know even going into the FDD stuff and into the old Rub stuff when they were just right. trying to figure out how to do scaled project management and software, right? And so like all of that stuff is incredibly formative. But what in my head is, it's like, I can justify where the patterns came from yeah. that, that we think about. Um, and I didn't invent any of them. And I kind of distilled some of them into a language that I think works. But, I, okay. but I'm standing on the shoulders of giants on as well, right? Right. And so... And so but those principles so are more defensible if you have the depth. Well, so it's a little, so it's a little bit like you kind of ask yourself, it's like, it's like, there's a ton of people that can write a lot of great software um within the ui of a mac right right and and like i but i'm not saying you have to learn binary to be able to take it like i mean i use the heck out of my iphone i can connect my iphone and my mac and my ipad and my apple tv with my network at home like all this stuff right not to understand necessarily how all that stuff works in order to be able to do that i just have to understand the user interfaces and how to how to plug in the sockets together right kind of a thing but understand a little bit, right? I mean, sometimes something will be broken on my home network and you know, I can go into my router and you know, see if um, I'm getting the right DNS address served or you know, I've got static mm-hmm. IP addresses or IP address ranges or whatever, right? And so like, there's edge cases where it's kind of nice to know that stuff. But yeah. you know, 99 times out of 100, I just reboot it and it comes back up and it's fine, right? Right. Um, that one time out of a hundred, it's kind of nice to have that. that hit. So that would be like knowing yeah. how to fix a car. 
You've got well, more, it's you've like, got yeah. maybe more power. You've got the ability to see things or understand things and maybe make some changes on your own. You're not as dependent on others. Yeah. Like, yeah. So maybe like, so, but you don't need to, but you don't need to understand that to drive it. Mm-hmm. You have to have right. enough awareness to know that you probably need to rotate the tires or keep air in them or put, put gas, gas in, in it, it or change the oil or whatever. Right. Right. I mean, you might know enough to go like, oh, I think my starter's out. I could probably replace it if I had to, but maybe I don't want to. Or right. my timing belt just, you know, is off or my spark plugs or whatever. But but like there's no universe in which I'm unpacking that stuff anymore and, and getting underneath it to learn how to do it. Right. right. I'm just not that interested. Right. Okay. So so I guess I guess, you know, kind of to the point, right, is that what we're trying to figure out how to do is is to develop and, and, and I want to be really clear, like, I mean, the, the talent that we have at our disposal in Leading Agile right now and the frames and the methods and the approaches and the playbooks and things like that um, are, are richer and deeper. Um, people are more talented than anybody we've ever hired. Mm-hmm. Um, but as we, as we get better and we go into larger organizations, more difficult organizations, right. as we are solving problems like i mean we're getting asked by customers to take what we do and you know there's the 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 more obvious adjacencies in like marketing and hr and talent things like that but then there's things that you would never really think of i mean we have clients that are building uh, in the intersection of um, software firmware hardware Mm-hmm. Right. And, and even some of our clients that are building large scale, doing large scale physical manufacturing and trying to figure out with us how to do some of these things. Okay. And, and, and that's probably an interesting angle. It's, and, and this is where we'll go sometimes. It's like, it's like if you just said, even if you're like deeply steeped in kind of leading Agile's philosophy of teams, backlogs, working tests, software structure, governance, and metrics, break dependencies or manage dependencies, you know, manage flow, right? Things. It's really only like when you talk about core principles internal leading Agile, it's usually what we reduce down to is those, those core frames. Okay. But if you walked into and you're trying to build, um, trying to, I'm trying to talk about this without saying too much, but you know, you're trying to build some gigantic piece of machinery using agile principles mm-hmm. and you're just like oh it's teams backlogs working test software and you're like well like yes and no right, right. because because software <laughs> and manufacturing hardware are not the same mm-hmm. like a lot of the principles of flow and teaming and assembly right. and lean right i mean all that stuff's underneath it and but what you have to do is you have to figure out okay where is lean applicable where is kanban applicable where is agile applicable where is multi tier governance applicable yeah. where does it make no sense whatsoever to even talk about agile like like what is the t- yeah i mean just like so like the deeper you understand the core principles the i believe the more effective you're going to be in taking agile into places that are not as obvious a fit Mm-hmm. And and where I think we are uh, as an industry, because I'm I, I I'm cleaning up some of this stuff right now, is where people are saying, oh, you want to be agile, and then they teach people safe or they teach people Scrum, yeah. and it just doesn't make any sense for what they're doing. Yeah, and it and it creates a lot of cognitive dissonance, and and people want to believe, right? People want to believe this is a thing, and so I I give I give people credit, right? Because they're they're continuing to hunt 
for pragmatic better ways yeah how to do this yeah okay yeah so these these principles would guide them through figuring out how to make choices about which type of framework structure whatever are we going to apply here because it's, it makes sense to do it almost like the same way that if you had the pinbock you could try to follow everything by the letter but if you really understood it you would understand which tools to use in the right situation yeah so so like we were we were i was having a brainstorming session with um a team that is working with um defense contractor mm -hmm. um to talk about how to use these ideas to revolutionize kind of the the next rev of their manufacturing process okay we think about it like what would that look like right because you know things made of steel are not soft like software right They're, they don't right. change very easily and so and so do you so like again i'm kind of riffing and maybe maybe a little um maybe a little too out on the edge here but like one of the things we were hypothesizing is like how much of the design process could you iterate on mm -hmm. if you were thinking about design decisions as a backlog what would you prioritize at the top of the backlog Mm -hmm. Right. And you start to think about what are the things, what are the architectural things in a giant piece of machinery that would be the hardest to change? Right. So you might make a couple of design decisions through and you realize, oh, OK, you need to go back and change kind of the frame. Right. Yeah. And then you make some design. Oh, OK, cool. That's not going to work. Let me go make some changes to the sheet metal. OK, so a couple of design decisions through. And, and as you start iterating through the design, certain parts of that design become more expensive yeah. to change, right? So they, they become more firm. And okay. then you start to think about, okay, well, as I iterate, okay, is this firm enough to have them go actually start to build it, right? Because if I, if, I, if I put that design into bent steel, right. then it's going to be incredibly expensive Hard if I change. learn something new, right? Yeah. It's, it's a little bit like, you know, maybe a simpler metaphor might be like if I were going to use Agile to, buy, to build a house. Like I could do the thing like the Winchester house kind of thing where I start with a shack and then I add some rooms and it's potentially usable all the time, right? But most house people don't want to build a house that way, right? Yeah. Just pragmatically, I don't want to build a house that way. Right? They want an integrated, thoughtful house, right? Yeah. And, and so there's certain decisions. Like you can iterate through the design. Maybe it's draftsman and paper and things like that. And there's a lot of decisions you need to make early, and there's a lot of decisions you can defer until you have more information. Right. The things that you need to decide early are the things that are most expensive to change, and they're the things that you have to make sure that are right. right. You know, is it going to be a ranch or is it going to be a two-story? Is it going to be on a basement? Is it going to be on a flat lot? Is it going to be in one state or another state? Right. I mean, there's certain decisions you have to make. Right. But kind of once you make them, it's. I mean, it's not like you couldn't totally redo it but it'd be a really expensive change yeah so there's certain things you probably want to validate i want a basement i want the house to be on a lake i want it to be in this county and this state i want it to be roughly this much square feet right right and then there's going to be some things that you decide to frame in but but then you have like some flexibility on the plumbing and the electrical and the hvac and all that kind and of stuff right carpeting, you have some yeah. flexibility there until you start putting up drywall and then you put up drywall and it makes all that stuff way more expensive to change. Right. 
right? But then even as you're like doing drywall, you don't have to make decisions about carpet and paint and fixtures and lights and all that kind of stuff, right? right? You can make that kind of as you go. And then okay. there's lots of things you can change after the house is totally done, right? I mean, you can even add things on later on sometimes, right? Within reason, yeah. right? You can add things on and, 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 you know, I don't have to pick the furniture or the decorations or anything until super late in the process. Yeah. Right. So it's all about making the expensive decisions early and okay. deferring things that are easier to change until you have more information. Yeah. And, and so is that agile? No. Is it scrum? No. But the is idea of making upon, your decisions at the last possible responsible moment would be a first there's a good principle, principle right? Yeah. There's a good first principle, right? You don't decide yeah. anything early. Like very much like the real options things from Chris Matt, Matt and, um, Oh gosh, Olaf. Who's oh, Olaf's last name? Oh, I apologize, Olaf, man. I just didn't. didn't I'll look it up. Hold on. But anyway, there's a ton of ways to options think. And even, and even as we were hypothesizing some of this stuff, like I was even going back into like the RUP phases, right? Of inception, elaboration, construction, transition, because that's all really about like front-ending business decisions and then front-ending architectural decisions and then and then iterating through construction and build decisions and then iterating through client handoff and stuff. And, and I get Rupp's not as agile as we would like it to be, but it was some of the early thinking underneath it. And I think some yeah. of those ideas are, are kind of solid, right? So we're blending Rupp and we're blending Kanban and we're blending team-based agile and then we're we're flowing decisions through cues and waiting to the last responsible moment right. and all that stuff's first principles but if you only know scrum and safe and that is your entry point to agile and you're stuck you're stuck right because what so okay cool so we're going to go build this gigantic battleship or something or a missile or whatever oh well off Mawson, yes Good job, man. Thank you. Thank you for looking that up. So, Olaf, I, uh, again, apologize. Just total head of mental block there. But, uh, but anyway, so, but like if all you know to, to recommend is, okay, well, this is how you do big room planning and we need to organize into release trains and we need to have, you know, you just kind of like, like, yeah, so okay. you have to know the why. You have to know the, the yeah, why. You got, behind we got to know the why, but it's even like, it's even deeper than the why, right? It's like, it's like, Sometimes I'll use the word physics. It's like you have to almost understand the physics of how this works so you can understand the particles, so you can understand the molecules, so you can understand the compounds and the material science and all this stuff, right? And if you and if you don't know the physics, yeah, like it's really hard to adapt the materials into the world you do. So so getting back to kind of like where you started this, um, you know, even within the, I, I think leading agile is a very um, nuanced, non-dogmatic approach or methodology agnostic. But there's a lot of things we call frames that are that are, um, I would say, applicable in most situations most of the time. They're like, again, they kind of they're core principles or maybe amalgamations of different core principles or physics or whatever. And and so what I tell people is that we give people who join Leading Agile, a lot of guidance on how to do this work. Yeah. But if even with our stuff, if you walk in and you dogmatically apply the guidance without deeply understanding what's going on, 
right? Then then it's 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 possible to get in trouble. So a lot of the conversations we're driving is like, yeah, sure, deeply understand our prior art, deeply understand the science and methodology that it's built right. on, understand the thinking of the of the leaders, the thought leaders that came before us that we're distilling the work of. And if you really deep and what this is the end of, of what I say to everybody, if you really deeply understand what we do, everything about our model is on the website. Yeah. Um, if you go into our playbook, you have 10,000 pages of shit that we've written down over the years yeah. because it's it's like reference implementation on those patterns. But but if if you deeply understand the principles, tremendous amount of freedom to adapt within it. Because we're over 150 people. We're like 160, yeah. push 170 people. And, and we're going to probably add 100 in the next year or so, I think. Um, and as we grow, get bigger, it's like, it's like helping people understand how to adapt this stuff is is pretty key. So is it agnostic in execution, but aligned in core beliefs? Um, agnostic in execution is probably um, a little strong because um, okay. I think I think some of our stuff is um, is is a little bit better baked than that. I guess. I mean, what I mean is that you don't. We're not prescribing a particular method or approach. On the ground, because we have that core system of beliefs that guides everything, which is the first principles. Yeah. So I look at that as like one of the things that I think is super cool is that if if you really get if you really understand what Safe is trying to do, what Less is trying to do, even what some of the scaled Scrum stuff is trying to do, like everything's built on the same core principles. Um, yeah. Everything's built on on common uh, frames. I, a lot of times I'll call it reference architecture. And so like what, what SAFE has come along and done is it said, okay, here's a bunch of practices on top of that reference architecture and that's right. SAFE. Um, here's a set of practices and ways of thinking that are on top of large-scale Scrum. Mm -hmm. Here's the things that are on top of discipline agile delivery. Here's the things that are on top of Nexus, right? And it's, so I tend to think about reference architecture, reference implementation. And so that's the reason why I don't get super hung up on methodologies that are right. packaged methodologies because they're all built on the same fundamental stuff. We all kind of have the same lineage and thinking. Yep. Um, it's the implementation patterns that tend to vary. Um, and that's why I think it's so important to anchor on the fundamental understanding is because that enables me to very competently tailor safe yeah. to the needs of my client without worrying about breaking safe. Like I right. deeply understand what's important about safe and then I understand what's what's negotiable. And okay. I think the more people who understand like what's the core they're holding on to yeah. versus what's the core they can safely let go. And again, it goes for Scrum, it goes for XP, it goes for Safe, it goes for Discipline Agile Delivery, large-scale Scrum, all the same. If you deeply understand, you are better at creating situationally specific strategies for your companies or your clients. And just before we close out, to tie it back to where you started, you're going in there and selling something based on a core belief system, when the people come in to do the execution of the work, we have to have that alignment so that they can follow yeah. through and deliver on what you promised. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a good place to end. Yeah. Okay. You put on your Mr. Had your Mr. Rogers moment, put the sweater back on. So, well, so I have a literally <laughs> have two minutes before I got to get on my oh, next cool. call. So it's like, I'd love what just, we originally we had two hours for this and I yeah. just got collapsed on both sides. But cool. I think we got to a good place, man. I did so, too. Thank uh, you for doing it. We'll, we'll, yeah, very welcome. And and again, I, I'm hoping we're going to get in a pattern of doing this more frequently. I want to yeah. try to do one of these. We've got more week, scheduled, so. so let's do cool. it. Thanks, man. Okay, Dave. Talk to you later. Thanks for having me, man. See you, Thanks. dude. Bye.